Up oh, there it is. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I screwed that up. Listen, I know you're uh, used to running the show <laughs> and everybody just doing things on well, your You were schedule, starting to count. This, it said not recording. This here is the Friday edition of Hitting Season. I this got is it. a whole other animal. Yeah, we do our show the way we like to do it while recording. Got That's it. kind of a key component. Got so, it. Got it. I'm just, I don't mean to put you in your place right off the bat, but. I'm chastised. I consider myself chastised and, and I accept it gleefully. All right, good. Castillo yes! it, and the Phillies have the National League Championship. They have beaten the Padres 4 3, and they celebrate on their home turf as the Phillies are the 2022. From WHYY and Billy Penn, this is your Friday edition of Hitting Season, a Philadelphia Phillies podcast. My name is Justin Clue. I write for Baseball Prospectus. With me is John Stolmus. Hello, it's fun to be here on Fridays. It's, it's a weekend. It's more fun to talk about the Phillies yeah. on a Friday, obviously. It's never fun to talk about the Phillies. You, you know this. <laughs> John, <laughs> what are you talking about? It's June. That means two things. Uh. One, happy Pride Month to our listeners. Mm-hmm. And two, why aren't the Phillies fixed yet? Uh, Kyle Schwarber, are, are the hoagies ready yet? Have we, have, has Wawa started doing the hoagie thing? Like, is that June? Oh, they I they match so. up, right? Okay. okay. It's, it's not June, it's hoagie fest. That makes hoagie way fest. more sense. Yeah. 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 So I'm not sure what, what the linkage is. Maybe, maybe it's hoagies, maybe it's June. I don't know. But whatever it is, it, nothing's worked so far. So people, when when they say that Memorial Day is when you start measuring baseball for real, what it actually is in Philadelphia is hoagie. Hoagie, is hoagie fest. fest. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That makes way more sense, actually. Yeah. Uh, I had to laugh because this is just, you know, a reflection of the general state of our average at best Phillies right now. I, I had to laugh when I opened the MLB app yesterday to check the score. And the, the main headline on the Phillies page was... <laughs> Harrison following path of World Series winning uncle. And I just had to think, we're we're here already? Bench player legacy stories to fill the gap on the three to five days in a row. This team just won't win a game. And like nothing against Harrison or the story itself, which is, is cool, but it's just that cool. Yeah. And it's being written about because there's no story to write about right now about how the Phillies are on fire. Yeah, no, Brandon Marsh figured out this... This new f- vegetable that he eats before <laughs> games that allows him to get three hits every night. You know, I mean, it's this is the kind of thing that you write like when you're in the doldrums of spring training and everybody decides, okay, today we're going to write about Josh Harrison. Everybody, get your stories ready. You know, that's mm-hmm. kind of how this it usually goes. It was an odd time for this particular story, based on media availability, essentially. Basically, the come out. And they offer him up by a like... Zoom or something. I don't know what's what happened. Yeah, and here we're just like, oh, yeah, pick a guy. Let's write about that guy. <laughs> Who haven't we heard from this season, really? Let's go with, oh, Josh Harrison. He's around. Yeah, so instead of, uh, like, look at all these home runs Kyle Schwarber is hitting, we get stuff like uh, apparently people were really upset about Ben Davis criticizing Francisco Lindor's lollipop throw to first on Wednesday. I mean... Who cares about either <laughs> part of that? How does a Ben Davis complaint make it all the way to like awful announcing to these like yeah. national well-known sites that are like, oh, here's some here's some stuff. And then Mets fans are like, well, uh, we hate that guy for saying that. And Phillies fans are like, 
well <laughs> yeah say, we don't really have his back on this one yeah or or ever you know i mean let's ben davis is not the most popular broadcaster in in philadelphia rightly or wrongly i don't feel strongly one way or the other about about ben davis but you know it was and, and i gotta say i think you know Ben was kind of piggybacking off of Tom McCarthy, it seemed to me, a little bit there. Tom seemed to be the one who was, who was who, the instant it happened, he was like, oh, you know, kind of fussing about it. And, and I think Ben just kind of went along for the ride there, too. So, you know, it was really both of them. It wasn't Ben Davis. It was Tom McCarthy. Tom McCarthy was just as disgusted as Ben Davis was about that. And, like, who cares? You're right. Who cares? Who, who Like, these are the things that you talk about when your team is – like one in 25 in May. That's, that's what you worry about. Context, nuance. None of these things exist out here in the wasteland of below 500 baseball. It's all just, this happened. Look at it. And let's talk. We need content. What is this? And you know, that's, that's what that story was. I mean, did, did Lindor look dopey throwing that ball away? Did? Yeah, absolutely. Does it matter what anyone said about it? Not at all. No. <laughs> No, and the I mean, Phillies proved there was no kind of throw any infielder on the Mets could make that that wouldn't have lost them that series. Like right, they, no, they were they were so incensed they struck out another ten times that game. <laughs> really stuck it to the really yeah let the let the fire underneath the Phillies with that throw. Yeah, they were really offended by that. Yeah, uh, as as we learned from this series Tuesday to Thursday uh, that the Phillies spent with the Mets. Yeah, they just can't beat the Mets anymore. That's just no. not that's the th- those days are over. That's a thing that just does not happen. Uh, they scored three runs in three games against the New York Mets, and the Mets only outscored them ten to three. So it's not like they were hitting the cover off the ball here. These were no. these were winnable games, or at least a, a beatable amount of runs coming from the other side. Uh, before we like break it down here, any, anything about this series that just comprehensively you feel like you learned about this team, or was it more more of the same? No, well, I think I mean I what I learned about this team is the vibes are just horrific right now. I mean, in shambles. I, it's it's and I really think there is some kind of psychological hold that that ballpark yes. has on this team because they didn't play badly in Atlanta. You know, they they lost that game on Sunday night pretty pretty badly, but you could look at Dylan Covey and say, yeah, they weren't that that was going to go that way. But they went into New York and turtled up. I mean, they <clears throat> completely turtled up. It was it was and I, I really did. I said this before. I really thought we were done with this kind of stuff with this team. You know, I really did. Mm-hmm. After after what happened in the playoffs last year, I, I really thought that we were done watching them go into some place like New York, like City Field, and not show up. And I know they're trying. I'm not saying they're not trying, but it's just that there are some places that you go to and it has a hold over you psychologically. That's what I learned about this team is that whatever happened in the playoffs last year, it didn't break the city field curse on them because they, they just can't play there. They can't play there. Some it, literally in some cases, Kyle Schwarber was hitless in this mm. series. As far as offensive c- contributions go, this man's bat is worthless to the Phillies at the moment. Oh, for 10, five strikeouts, bad Trey Turner, one for 11, no walks, bad Bryson Stott, two for 13, four strikeouts, no walks, bad other than Edmundo Sosa's home run. The only Phillies home run in this series. Brandon Marsh had the only other extra base hit the Phillies had. A double in game two, but guess what? Nobody was in scoring position, so nobody came in to score. Bad. Ranger Suarez, six and two-thirds innings, two earned runs, four strikeouts, two walks. Not the worst. Really an improvement from the Suarez we've been seeing, so that was honestly encouraging development-wise. Yeah. 
Aaron Nola, six innings, four hits, three walks, four and runs, bad. Taiwan Walker, four innings, another mess, bad. Phillies bullpen, one earned run, four hits, two walks, seven and a third innings. Really not bad. Very good, actually. Phillies mm-hmm. bullpen, uh, a strength on a team that can't seem to do anything else right. Which, uh, you know, I mean, we're going to talk about what options are available to the Phillies. Everybody wants to see something done or something cause change. I don't think the kind of something that people are talking about is the kind of something that's going to happen, at least very soon. Uh, But uh, when we look at this bullpen and and how they've really come into their own, there's certainly been moments where you you hated them, uh, where Gregory Soto, Soto has struggled, Sir Anthony Dominguez has struggled. Uh, even at the beginning of the year, Craig Kimbrell wasn't looking too solid in his role, but guys have really straightened things out, and they can give you a couple of days of really good relief pitching to, to lean on. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you don't want to have to lean on that all the time, but I'm saying if this is a point of strength for the Phillies, and they went out of their way to arm the late-inning relief core with guys who can throw really hard. So, you know, they have Alvarado coming back from injury at some point. Uh, they have Dominguez, who, like I said, has struggled. They have Soto, who, like I said, has also struggled, but has also looked great this year is it possible that Kimbrel gets moved for some other kind of help that they're uh, on the hunt for here like the kind of help that they didn't know they were going to need I mean I guess it's possible because if you get those guys back it's a luxury to have that many closer type guys but I don't th- I don't think they can afford to deal from their bullpen when they don't I mean I I know if you could go out and you could get another starting pitcher that would that would be worth that would be worth it but I don't know many teams out there that are gonna, that are going to trade you a viable decent starting pitcher for uh, a setup guy or I guess a closer for for what the Phillies need him for right now Craig Kimbrell is going to be the right-handed closer uh, when he comes back but I don't I don't think he's a huge trade chip i mean i i think he's a guy who can get you something okay maybe another you know a a, a good you know like an outfielder on an expiring contract maybe i mean and then right. that might be what they need but i don't know what what kimbrell's value is i mean how much other teams believe in what he's given them so far this year i i forget what did david robert what did the phillies have to give up to get david robertson last year because i think that's kind of what we're looking at in in terms of of value of what they would uh, be be looking at in return they they gave up a, a young it was a young pitcher wasn't it some some kid from the minors uh let's see he was ben brown to acquire, ben brown is his to, name oh yeah 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 to acquire him they sent ben brown who um Dombrowski had just said was untouchable was part of a group of untouchable right, pitchers right and he's and <laughs> he he's coming up through the Cubs farm system and he's one of their top pitching prospects like he looks really <laughs> really good the Phillies would kill to have Ben Brown but David Robertson helped him get to the World Series last year so and frankly you know. no one had heard of Ben Brown before that trade most people had not heard of Ben Brown before that trade he was not a like top five Phillies prospect I don't think when right. that trade went down that's a good trade anybody was yeah um, so, I mean, okay, that's a good preview for what we're going to hit, uh, in, in a little bit here, which, you know, what, what options do the Phillies have to make an adjustment? But, uh, before we get to that, just this team, yeah. I mean, yeah, you just look at them. They're in fourth place in the NL East, uh, still they are, you know, it, it will take a hot streak to get them just to 500. Uh, this is really the stat, the state they've been in for what feels like weeks now. Uh, I mean, yeah, what, 25 and 31. Uh, how much better, like, if you were to be at this point in the season, uh, beginning of June, 
and you were actually going to feel good about where this team was, what record would they have right now in your mind? Because I was thinking, like, man, if, if they were, like, three games over 500, like, hey, it feels like a luxury right now. But also, I can see a lot of people complaining about that. I can see a lot of people being like, well, no, we're too close to 500. That's not good enough. So I guess I'm asking, if you really think about it realistically, what record could they have right now that would make you think, yeah, this is good. This is a continuance of last year. This mm-hmm. is what I wanted. You know, what, what, what record would that be? I don't know what the Braves record is off the top of my head, but I would think if they were like, you know, four games off the Braves pace, which I think it'd probably be like seven games over 500, something like that, eight games over 500, I think that would be, I, I think that would match our preseason expectations, right? If we're, t- if we're thinking that te- this team is a contender for the, a division title, a World Series contender, then I'm thinking they, they've, they're probably seven eight games over 500, something like that. And I think that would be, I think that would be reasonable to, to have that expectation of them through May. They wouldn't be in first, but they would, they would be solidly in second place. They would be in a good position in terms of that, that top wild card. And again, it's too early to think about seedings with wild card and all that kind of stuff. But if you're playing at that kind of a level, you're on the path to making the postseason. Like things are looking really good for you to make the postseason. You're, you're probably winning about, you know, you probably got a winning percentage of like around 580, 590, something like that. That's, I would feel good about this team if, if they were there, if that's where they were. I would feel that my preseason expectations are pretty much getting met because then I could say, yeah, there's still room for improvement. They, there's still a runway where, where they could still take off. But right now, it, I, you can see that there's a runway, but they got to get the plane going through 50 feet of mud before they even reach the cement part of it. And that's what's really frustrating. Right. The Braves are 10 games over 500, um, three and a half games over the Mets to lead the NL East. The Phillies are six games under 500. They are eight games behind the Braves. And this upcoming series with the Nationals, which should be considered a chance to feast on an inferior team and get rack a few wins up, is really an attempt to make sure that basement door stays shut. Yeah. Because we could be looking at a last place Phillies team here yeah. if this series yeah. doesn't go great. If this series goes anything but a win, a series win for the Phillies, I believe they will be in last place by the end of it. So there's actually more on the line with this Washington <laughs> Nationals series in early June than one might have thought looking at the schedule to start the season. Because the Nationals are one game mm-hmm. behind the Philadelphia Phillies, the defending National League champion Philadelphia Phillies, who largely have the same roster that they went to the World Series with last year, are one game above the Washington Nationals, who are projected to be absolute garbage this season. So I would say a better roster. Yeah, Their roster yeah. is better than last year. Yeah, that is true. Uh, so by now, after two months, I think you can say this team's problems, starting pitching is weak, Nola in particular just is a no-show, hitting isn't there. Do you think the Phillies, I mean, do you think they'll scramble to make some kind of changes? They've got to realize that, like, you know, we all knew this, but they have a team of guys 29, 30, 31 years old, and the window they gave themselves, therefore, isn't as wide as, like, watching a, a class of prospects come up together and then filling in the gaps with some free agents. No, no, this is a team largely of free agents, mostly who were signed around 30 years old, who are on 5 to 11-year contracts with the Phillies. And we all know when a guy's prime typically is, and we all know how quickly they can they can leave it. So the window for contention is not as wide as it might be for other teams. Uh, I mean, we all know 10, 11, 12-year deals have a lot of not-prime years at the end of them, and we just wasted two months trying to get right, get get, get guys right who we already mm. thought were right. Yeah. So 
what buttons do the Phillies really have to push? That's why I brought up the Kimbrel thing, because last year it seemed like they had some obvious moves to make, and we, we, uh, we saw some fans talking about this on Twitter. Last year it felt like, yeah, they're flawed, but it seems pretty clear what, what they need to do in some areas. A lot of people wanted them to fire Joe Girardi, which obviously they eventually did around this time of year. Uh, hey, uh, Jairus Familia and Odubel Herrera were problem areas on this roster. They were just not getting it done. And they were part of that clean sweep. They were gone around the time, uh, like the trade deadline when they brought in a bunch of new faces that really helped. Uh, they just stopped playing D.D. Gregorius and Ronald Torres so much and used the guys who were actually supposed to be filling those roles. This year, the obvious solution eludes me, and I think a lot of people. So the first thing a lot of people turn to is, well, we got to fire somebody. They need some change. Thompson is unfortunately, you know, that that little whisper of a, of a narrative got plugged into the news cycle inevitably by WIP. And now it's something that comes up on occasion, even though it really, you know, the question would be why? Seriously, like why fire Rob Thompson now? I don't think a person advocating for this really has a specific reason other than, well, it worked last time or I don't like what I'm looking at. So fire the manager. Right. That's something you can do. We're only now reaching like one cumulative year for Rob Thompson on the job <laughs> and he just got an extension. So no, I don't think the manager is getting canned nor do I think he should be because unlike Girardi, I don't think Thompson's decisions are a primary driver of this team's failures. Failures. No, he's hasn't been perfect and and taking Brandon Marsh out of the game in the ninth inning uh, on Thursday and replacing him with this Drew Ellis kid who they just signed off his couch a couple of months. Was, was sitting on his couch a couple of months ago, uh, unaffiliated, and they bring him in to, to be a pinch hitter as the tying run in the ninth inning. I don't care if there's a left-handed reliever on the mound. You leave Brandon Marsh in. You don't bring in some some guy that you had in double A two weeks ago to, to be bizarre. the tying run at the play. I mean, it's just, it's a bizarre move. And those are kinds of, those are some of the kinds of things that Rob Thompson does every once in a while where you just scratch your head. And I think he overthought himself you know he thought righty on lefty marsh can't hit lefties when with marsh has actually done okay against left-handers during the course of this year so or just at the very least he's a better hitter than drew ellis at the, no matter who he's facing he's a better hitter than than drew ellis and so i get that rob thompson he's not he doesn't have any answers right now and you want a manager who can have answers and last year it seemed like rob thompson was the answer or that he had answers to fix what the problems were but like you said we also forget that there were actual moves on the field that they could make they could they could swap out Ronald Torres and, and Didi Gregorius for, for Bryson Stott and, and bring him back up. Uh, they could they could go out and they could acquire Brandon Marsh to get Odubel Herrera out of center field. They took some net negative players, got them off the field, and put on some net and put in some net positive players, even though they weren't stars, to 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 pick up a couple of wins above replacement each. And so that was huge. But their worst performers this year are Trey Turner and Kyle Schwarber. <laughs> and JT Realmuto. Like these these are your worst performers. Aaron Nola, Taiwan Walker. <laughs> the, these are your like the five worst performers on this team are really those five guys, especially when you consider relative to expectation. So they're not going anywhere. They have to do better. Like it it's those guys. Like Nick Castellanos has been fine, but he's not a he's I think we're seeing what Nick Castellanos Nick Castellanos is. He's he's can be a a, a a bit player, you know, good player, but he's not he's not an impact guy. And we we've seen that. Even in a good season like this, he's not an impact guy. I think Bryce Harper is still coming back from his elbow injury. He's getting hits, you know, he's trying to do his part, but he he can't do it alone. 
but he hasn't gone on a crazy hot rampage like you you want to see from an MVP, like a superstar caliber player. But it's hard to hold him up to that standard because he did come back two months early from Tommy John surgery to get back into the lineup and has been productive. He's been he was one of two players in the month of May that were uh, that were uh, above average offensive players. It was Bryce Harper and Cody Clemens were the only two that were above average last month. So there's there is nothing you can do. There's no one you can call up. There's no one you can trade for right now. They already have a number five spot in the rotation where it's just, there's just like that blank face that you see on MLB.com when they look at the expected starters and you see TBA, you know, you get the blank TBA face to be an, I don't know who the number five starter is going to be. And now you have this issue with Taiwan Walker, who's suddenly throwing a mile and a half slower, but there's no injury, but he's limping around the locker room, but there's no injury, but he had a strange forearm. But it's no injury, nothing wrong. I mean, just there's a lot of weird going on here, and it's it, it's these these star players that are simply not doing their job. And there's nothing, there's nothing. I wish there was something they could do. There's nothing, there's nothing they can do to fix it, other than to keep running these guys out there. Maybe you shuffle the lineup a little bit. Maybe you drop Trey Turner down to seven for for a little while, and just get him out of the top of the lineup, and maybe take some of the pressure off him to not have to worry about trying to get on base all the time. Just just let him just let him languish at the bottom of the order for a little bit, and move Brandon Marsh up, who at least has a walk rate. Like nobody on yeah. this team is walking. Everybody's swinging at pitches a mile out of the strike zone because they're all trying too hard. They're all trying to hit the five run home run. They're all trying to make up three games in the standing in one day, and you can't do that. Yeah, I uh, I, I feel like. Uh, I, I'm getting really sick of people saying, well, you can't, no, you absolutely don't bury your $300 million star shortstop low in the lineup. Yeah, you can do whatever you want. You write yeah. the lineup. No one has whatever. a right to complain about where they're hitting in the lineup right now. Please stop using Trey Turner's paycheck as a reason not to do things, like move him <laughs> down lower in the order. Like that's, or bench him. Like the guy's struggling. It doesn't yeah. matter how much money he's making. He's, he could be, he could be making league minimum right now. If he's whiffing, you know, at this point it's gone on long enough. The part where he, he has status as this, cause I know when you say $300 million player, you're, you're kind of just surmising his status as a player in the league. He is a known star. He has done mm-hmm. incredible things. The Phillies gave him all that money for a reason. Uh, and But the, the, the goodwill, the leeway there is gone. The part where Rob Thompson says, hey, do you want to fight your way through it or do you want a night off tonight to clear your head? And he gets the choice really is kind of over like yeah. it's it's been it's been over two months now. It's it's time to start making some uh, some executive decisions here. And Rob Thompson, who I really I do appreciate that he is I see like one quote of his a night after a postgame presser because I don't really I don't pay attention to those. Uh, You don't really get a whole lot out of them and you certainly aren't going to get a whole lot now. Rob Thompson, I do admire that he is very he has been calm and he has been steady and he's just like, yeah, you know, it'll happen eventually. Because like you said, some of this, it's just weird and, and not working. The Phillies are, he said, uh, uh, the Phillies are trying to do too much and they've got to relax after one of these Mets losses. After yesterday's loss, he said that the last three National League champs have started their season the same way. Both of those things are true, but I'm sure that's not what people want to hear. Yeah. So I think, you know, it's overall point is, is sound. And he's, he's really not even making a point. He's just saying the things managers say when a team is struggling. And the way they're set up and the guys they have pretty much dictate that there's only one way out and it's just to start playing well. You don't know what's going to trigger that. Could be a bamboo plant. Could be Joe Girardi getting fired. It's different things every year. Uh, and I actually found a couple of things from the past that uh, <laughs> okay. that have worked for giving this team's uh, turnaround. 
1976, Danny Ozark, the Phillies manager, was getting booed every time he appeared on the field because the team was scuffling. Then the team, you know, started hitting. They acquired Tug McGraw, Ron Reed, and Jim Catt. And suddenly Ozark was being lauded for his decision-making and cheered by the fans. You can really become a genius when Schmidt and Luzinski hit homers and Cash and Boa deliver clutch hits, Ozark said later. <laughs> Which kind of, you know, again, surmises the struggle the Phillies have currently. You know, they have a bunch of good players. The talent is here. You're just kind of waiting for it. Uh, a frank exchange of ideas between Mike Schmidt and their new manager, Paul Owens, in 1983, after Pat Corrales was fired, led to a stretch in which the Phillies won 19 of 22 and clinched the National League East. Paul Owens, of course, later downplayed that conversation, which had been uh, Schmidt going to him mad and being like, yeah, look, we need some consistency here. There's no lineup. We don't know who the manager is. Like, you got to you gotta give us something here to, to work with. And Paul Owens was like, shut up. And uh, they, <laughs> they didn't really resolve that in, a, in an amicable way, but then they did. They went, they went 19 and 3 down the stretch, and Owens apparently uh, scoffed at the idea that that was what turned things around on September 6th, that that argument. But, you know, they were one way, the argument happened, and then they were the next way. You'll never be able to convince some people that that wasn't the catalyst for change. And most importantly, in 1989, a uh, Philly sports radio personality decided to contact a witch and get her to help uh. end a losing streak the Phillies were on. Uh, uh, yeah, I thought I, about that. Yeah, that's a uh -huh. good one. Yeah, yeah. I uh, reached out to a 49-year-old unemployed nurse who said she invoked witchcraft's nature spirits, the sun and the wind, and she claimed the winning streak would continue for at least another game or two. She said she's not trying to make the Phillies pennant contenders. The spell was just to end the losing streak, which it successfully did. This according to the uh, the Star Tribune out of Minneapolis. Uh, so, yeah, there's there's a couple things that teams have done in positions like this, but... For the most part, we're here recording another episode of this show and saying that, like, yeah, the Phillies are pretty handcuffed as far as what they can do to change this situation other than just playing the game well. And I think that's testing a lot of people's patience. <laughs> well, because you want to see you want to see them. You want to see something done. You want to mm -hmm. see some because I've seen, you know, a lot of folks as they're watching this team. You get this on Twitter. I'm sure I do. They don't care. They don't mm -hmm. they don't they don't give a boot. They care. They care too much, I think, is what's happening. Like they, they want to get back to the World Series. They, they're not sitting there thinking, well, you know, you know, we lost that World Series, but we're just going to go back home and watch some more YouTube highlights, and we'll feel better about ourselves. That's not how professional athletes operate, right? These guys, I think, if anything, I think the opposite is true. They, they are trying too hard. They're, they're trying, what, and we've seen this with slumps, and it's a team-wide thing now. But, you know. When somebody starts to struggle, you try to get, you try to pick that guy up, but then you start to struggle, and so then now you the guys further down the lineup think, well, I gotta I gotta pick up the slack because you know we've got some guys who aren't hitting real well. But then you start to put more pressure on yourself, and you know this is in a video game. These guys are all wrapped around the axle, and I think what a manager has to do, and what Rob Thompson has to do, is to get these guys to relax somehow. It's not easy in Philadelphia in this market with us yelling at them, but I, they have to figure out a way to just stop thinking. I think what they're doing is thinking they're they're seeing how far they're how much farther behind they're falling, and thankfully they are in a National League filled with parity where no one is going to be out of the wild card race until August at the earliest. So even no matter how bad they play, they're still they're still contenders to grab a wild card spot. So they they have that and they 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 can lean on that a little bit. 
But Rob Thompson has got to figure out a way to get these guys to stop trying to make up four games in the standing in one night or even four games in the standings in, in one four-game series. It's just it's too much pressure to put on yourselves. And as a team, when you go game after game after game without hitting with runners in scoring position, you start to chase. And now you're chasing so many balls out of the, out of the strike zone that no one's throwing you strikes anymore. But you're so desperate to get a hit that you're, that you're swinging anyway. And that's what we're seeing with Turner and Schwarber and Castellanos and, and, uh, and, and Real Muto and all these different guys. They're just not letting the game come to them. It seems like they're, they're flailing with their arms out, trying to make wins happen out of nowhere. And it's not, it, it doesn't work like that. So, I mean, you can look at the stats. You can see what they're doing, why they're doing it, and how to get them to stop is Kevin Long's job, and it's Caleb Cottom's job to get the guys to pitch well and to hit well. And I don't think it's on the coaches or the manager this time around. I think it's, it's squarely on the players. And they're not going anywhere, guys. Like, they're not getting traded. You're not trading Kyle Schwarber. Nobody wants a guy hitting 160 through two months of the season. Nobody so, wants a guy like Aaron Nola, who, has the, who had the worst ERA of his career through his first 11 starts. I mean, you want to get rid of guys and replace them with good guys. We've had this conversation before. Yeah. That's not how trades work. Right. And I think, you know, at the time of Andrew Painter's injury, I think I convinced myself, yeah, that's a shame. Wanted to see more of him this year. He's going to lose a year. That really, that's, that, that sucks. I hate that. Uh, but it really, I, I, it didn't make me think, oh, this is going to upend a lot of the Phillies' plans. Well, I'm sure the Phillies really considered themselves fortunate to have this extremely highly touted pitching prospect at their, you know, at their whim in case they wound up in a situation like this where they could really use some starting pitching help. They push that button and then boom, look, you have this guy who at, at the very least was an option to come in and uh, in a fill a back of the rotation role, even as a young guy who's probably going to be on pitching limits. But still, uh, another another option would have been healthy, but that's gone. And he's probably not, you know, that no writer is has has phrased it as though he's even going to pitch this year because nobody knows for sure. Yeah. So that I think winds winds up being a lot more of a catalyst uh, for this team than 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 maybe previously thought. Uh, and then Kevin Long, you know, we talk about firing Rob Thompson. That's the other name that comes up. And I mean, look, guys, <laughs> did we not just spend like the better part of a year lauding? Kevin Long specifically right. for his work with guys like Alec Bohm, Bryson Stott, Brandon Marsh. And yeah, they're not struggling right now. So you can make the argument if we're going to credit him for, for team success, then maybe he takes the he should be blamed for their failures as well. But I don't think that's how a hitting coach works. And I don't think that's how, you know, Kevin Long works. It's not like he's telling them, all right, now try this. And it's not working. And he's like, oh, crap. Well, I don't know what to do. It's just, it's that things are, you know, maybe there are adjustments they need to make. And maybe he hasn't said the magic words in their ear. But at the same time, this is a guy who they brought in for a reason because of what he had been able to do with Kyle Schwarber previously uh, and what he had done with the Phillies young players. And just because the offense has been struggling for a while now, it doesn't mean that guy isn't still valuable. This isn't like disposable Milt Thompson, Greg Gross territory where he's just a guy who knew how to put the bat on the ball and is the hitting coach and you can just fire him and whatever. This is a guy who has been important to the Phillies development of key members of their starting roster. So again, I don't think it's as easy as saying you're gone, bring in the next guy to be the hitting coach because what, what message is that sending the fans? And I don't really think it's going to change much anyway. No, that would send that, any move to change members of the coaching staff right now would would just signal panic. It's a panic move. It would be totally detrimental to what it is they're trying to do. And I, you know, I thought that you know the commission for Kevin Long's statue 
had just been had, had just been finalized, right? I mean, didn't we, weren't we getting something ready to, to, to put about in front of Citizens Bank Park for the guy? I mean, <laughs> I started saying, hey, we also got to credit the players who he's worked with who did improve as well, because I started to hear myself and I was like, I'm not really trying to turn this guy into a, a, a patron saint here and, right, and that, right. that, who can do no wrong because, you know, he is a coach. He can, he has, I'm sure, made mistakes. It's baseball. A lot of the time you're, you're conducting a lot of experiments to, to get a little bit of success and just using what you learn from that little bit of success to try and find larger amounts of it. Right. Uh, and Kevin Long has found something in, in uh, a couple of these guys and in players elsewhere for other teams he's worked with uh, that's been really helpful for them. And right now the team he's the hitting coach for is really struggling, but I don't think I don't think you can blame Kevin Long for Trey Turner not being able to hit a high fastball. You know, that's not, that's not really on him. So, yeah, again, and, and, and just the act of firing someone right now would be would be panic. But yeah. didn't were they panicking last year when they fired Girardi? Well, no, because that was three years in the making. Correct. I mean, it, 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 this was just, you know, Rob Thompson has had two months of struggles here. Mm-hmm. Joe Girardi oversaw... And, and you heard the, the the about some of the stuff in in the clubhouse about communication not being great. You know the young guys not feeling free to express themselves. And when Rob Thompson came in, they all felt free to express themselves, and that really kind of opened up the clubhouse and made it a looser environment. And it's just that's that change. Sometimes that change really can trigger something in guys and help guys relax a little bit. But you know, you right now you don't have anything like that. You don't have a new culture that you can introduce to the locker room, unless it's a a new player who's going to make waves and get everybody excited. But those guys are not out there right now. And the Phillies are not making a big splash like that right now, because it's too early in the season for that. There are really no sellers in the national league right now because of how, of how compacted everybody, the reds are ahead of the Phillies in the standings. I mean, there's, so there's just, (laughs) there, there are no sellers. There's nobody out there who's really looking to get rid of a bunch of guys. And you just, you know, the, the thing that worries me is that all these superstars we've been talking about here are all getting older. They're all on the other side of 30, and they should not be struggling like this, even if they are over 30 years old. But Not all of them. You not know? all of them at the same time. <laughs> and, and that's why I do think, you know, this – I do think this will turn around. But I say that with less confidence now than I did a couple of week ago, a couple of weeks ago, right? I do think this will turn around. My, my emphasis is on the think – because it's more of a asking a question as opposed to, I do think they'll turn this around. You hear the difference in those sentences? And I imagine that's going on in the mm-hmm. brains of a lot of people listening. Yeah, I too would like to announce, make some sort of public announcement about my confidence level being lower than it is. But, you know, it's a spectrum, not one side or the other. So you're just kind of like, yeah, yeah, I don't want to be lobbed in with the giving up. But, yeah, I mean, I have less confidence in this team than ever. Every time... Kyle Schwarber whiffs or shoots a ground ball to the right side, I lose confidence. Every time they can't get a lead from a 4 nothing lead or a 4-2 lead from the Mets is, is insurmountable. They score in the first inning and then not again. Like that, I, I lose confidence in this team. Every loss means they're going to have to get that much hotter to dig themselves out of this hole. Right. And we've seen them win a couple of games in a row, like twice this year. Like I think they won what five games in a row, six games in a row, uh, uh, once each, but yeah, we haven't seen this team really like break off a, a, a like a winning eight of 10 or winning, winning, uh, 12 of 15 or 18 of 20, you know, something that really shows like, no, no, this team came to play. It's okay. 
but that's because this lineup isn't what it was supposed to be, too. I mean, it was supposed to be Harper, Hoskins, Schwarber, Castellanos, Real Muto, Boom, everybody more comfortable, everybody with a year of playing together under their belts, everybody with postseason experience, you know, a shared bonding experience that they all seem to enjoy playing together, and now they get to do it again. But now we're looking at Cody Clemens, Dalton Guthrie, <laughs> Drew Ellis are, are in the lineup, and you're like, what is this? This is not... Yeah. And, and now, you know, just to heap some more bad news on top, Alec Bohm's injured. So they will never have a first baseman again, it seems never. like. That's that's like the, I believe we've we've characterized positions on the Phillies like this before, but that's their defense against the dark arts professor position now. It's just, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's a cursed spot. Uh, Bohm, of course, underwent an MRI on a hamstring that has been bugging him. Uh, it had kept him benched for the past few games. Phillies put him on the 10-day injured list. Not the biggest deal in the world, but it's still a guy who you want in the lineup, who you can't put in the lineup. It feels like he's one of a dozen guys on this team hitting like 265 with a seven something OPS, uh, you know, like middling, never, you know, not never like not hitting the cover off the ball, but like doing an okay enough job to not really take the brunt of the complaints, but he's been their best hitter with runners in scoring position. So I guess that's over for the next two weeks or so. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Hope you guys don't like offense. So, I mean, how much are the Phillies going to miss Alec Bohm over this next 10 uh, day period? Yeah, I, it's, they're going to miss him for sure because you, you, until Derek Hall comes back, and he's on a rehab assignment, so Derek Hall will probably be back if he if he has a you know good few games down in down in the minors. He'll he might be back in a week, um, and it sounds like Bohm might be out longer than the ten days that he's going to spend on the injured yep. list. So yep. I wouldn't expect him back right away. That being said, Bohm is uh, Alec Bohm is what Alec Bohm is. I, I think we now know what Alec Bohm is and what he's going to be in the spring. I think people got excited about some of the power we were seeing from him, and it carried early into the season. He was hitting a few more home runs, but that's that's not him. He he's going to be a two sixty to two seventy hitter. He's going to be like a seven ten to seven forty OPS guy, seven fifty maybe OPS guy. He's going to be a slightly below average to average league hitter at, at third base and kind of a middling third baseman. I, I just, so, but you do miss him right now because of Reese Hoskins absence and because you don't have Derek Hall. And so you're going to have, thank goodness Cody Clemens is playing well because you're going to have a lot of Cody Clemens at first base for the next little while. And probably Drew Ellis will get the start against left-handed starters. And so it's, they're going to miss him. And, and you're right. He was one of the few guys because he makes so much contact and because he does hit line drives, he was one of the few guys who was hitting well with runners in scoring position this year. He led the team in RBIs. That's when you've got an offense that's struggling. That's a tough guy to lose from the middle of the lineup. So he's not an impact bat. He's not a great glove, but the fact that they could move him back and forth from third base to first base and that they could put him in number five, number six in the lineup and, he was really kind of the guy you wanted up there with runners in scoring position. It'll be very interesting to see how the lineup responds without him because they, they will miss him. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll miss the Phillies scoring runs and knocking in runs uh, yeah. as well. But then Four again, I don't feel like the Phillies offense. Yeah, I don't feel like I'm, I'm familiar enough with that concept to really miss it so much. So I guess, you know, I guess we'll see what happens. And again, it'll be against the Nationals. So I assume the Phillies are going to. Get shut out in two of these games. Uh, probably get like no hit by Patrick Corbin or something if they're going to face him. I didn't look at the probable pitchers or anything. It uh, just seems like you know that that's that's the vibe right now when you talk about the vibe. And to spice that vibe up, uh, if you were if you were feeling like the vibe the vibes in the presence were doldrum uh, to say the least, then the Phillies really spiced things up for you by uh, announcing another Phillies third baseman 
coming back to Philadelphia. (laughs) (laughs) In Scott Rowland, John Quinn, and Ruley Carpenter being named as the figures to join the Philadelphia Phillies Wall of Fame over Alumni Weekend this year. And boy, I got to tell you, John, I believe we've talked about Roland in the past uh, on on this show, probably in the context of who else should be on the Wall of Fame, to be honest. Mm -hmm. And I think the three of you, me and Liz, where we land on this was generally, you know, not nothing really against Roland anymore. Uh, Nothing, you know, not not, certainly not like a a J.D. Drew level of of vitriol. You know, it seems like a lot of just malfeasances from yesteryear and you know they've seemed to have run their course and that was generally my my thinking there was like yeah okay i mean they brought pre they they brought pete rose back and people didn't make enough noise to stop that from happening so what are they going to really say about bringing scott Rowland back and boy boy was i wrong and i gotta i gotta tell you i think people from a a certain generation really still do not want scott Rowland honored at, at citizens bank park well let me let me give you let me give you the opinion from someone who was intimately and you were you know you were intimately aware of what was going on back then but you know i was in my my early 20s when this was all going on this is like 2001 2002 2003 when it really started to hit the fan and um you know, it was actually, sorry, 2001, 2002, when Larry Boa was the manager, he and Scott Rowland, Scott Rowland just never fit in, in Philadelphia. Like he was just the personality type. He, he totally different guy and didn't like playing in Philadelphia, didn't like playing for the fans. And it was pretty clear that when he became a free agent, that he was going to leave. The team gave him a really good contract extension offer at the time. And he turned it down because he wanted the team to put in a provision that said that they would spend a certain amount of their payroll on, on, on salary. Um, a certain amount of their their operating budget on salary or whatever, you know, compared to whatever the league average was or something like that. Right. I remember seeing the list of his demands and I remember thinking like, yeah, that's that's great. I actually, yeah. I, I applaud all of those things. And from a fan's perspective, sure, but it's not something any ownership would ever no. agree to. Not, no. <laughs> certainly once it became public. And so there was a poison pill that he put in his contract demands that the team was never going to, that the team was never going to agree with. And so he, no, he just, he, he, he didn't like being here and he was happy to get out of Philadelphia and go play for St. Louis. He, he just talked gushingly about how much better St. Louis was and, and how happy he was in St. Louis. I mean, it just, by inference, it was essentially his way of saying, I hated it there. I couldn't wait to get out. And fans didn't like it. And the the other part of Scott Rowland was is that he was a very streaky hitter at the beginning of his career. And he would kill that he was like he was the central star. And there were a lot of there were a lot of seasons and a lot of stretches where he was killing them. I think Larry Boa, one of the things that really set Scott Rowland off when Boa was manager was like he said something like our cleanup hitter is killing us right now. And that was Scott Rowland and they got into a big fight and there were numerous fights between Boa and Rowland. It was just ugly. The whole thing of his departure was absolutely ugly and it left a bad taste. So a guy like Pete Rose comes back and fans love it because Pete Rose never said anything bad about Philadelphia fans. Pete Rose never tried to never talked his way out of town. Scott, so, you know, there's nothing personal to, to Phillies fans. You have to set aside all the other awful stuff Rose did in his life and in his career. But um, with Scott Rowland, as good a guy as he might be, and I'm over it, I'm past it, I'm happy to see Scott Rowland come back and, and be put on the Wall of Fame because he's a Hall of Fame player who was drafted and developed by this organization. And he actually had more wins above replacement as a Philly than he did with any other team. So you could argue that he had his most productive full stretch as a member of the Philadelphia Phillies. So 
he'll go in as a cardinal or whatever, like, and that's what he'll be remembered for. But he was he was a guy who was drafted and developed and and began his career with the Philadelphia Phillies, and he's a Hall of Famer. He really should be on the Wall of Fame if you if that's what we're talking about. If that's what the Wall of Fame is, it's not the Wall of guys we really like. I mean, it's maybe maybe that's what it's becoming, but <laughs> yeah, I think in, in a way it kind of is it's that. Kind of what I mean, it that's is. that's what, it, but that's what it's great for is that it, unlike the Hall of Fame, there's a guarantee that at least one person is going up there every year. Uh, they are they pick guys who would you know a lot of them wouldn't have a, sh- a shot at the Hall of Fame, but that's why like the Wall of Fame is so cool. It gives you this like. Uh, um, insular Phillies celebration opportunity with with guys who were role players or fan favorites in addition to the true legends of not just Philadelphia but the game itself. Uh, and that's why it's so cool. Uh, in the case of Roland, yeah, the, the when you remember the specifics of it, it does it's a lot worse. So I guess what I'm what I was thinking was it's just been so long. It's been 20 years. Are, have, we, have we really held on to that frustration? Because I'm sure I know I read Boa's book, uh, his autobiography, uh, his memoirs earlier this year. And he, of course, talks about the Roland thing. And that book is filled with just like. Oh, I didn't realize young players would be so sensitive. So I do apologize for my, you know, a lot of backhanded yeah, stuff. Yeah. And and the uh, the co-writer, you know, whoever journalist or author that he worked with on it, uh, does him a lot of favors on that front as well. Just being like, well, modern players are a lot more sensitive, and Roland's one of those. But at the end of the day, I think there, I I feel like I remember even just when Roland got into the Hall of Fame was Boa like quoting being like, yeah, no, I'm happy for Scott. This is great. You know, this is, you know, I've obviously held no ill will at this point. And I think Roland kind of reciprocated. So like they're over it. I I get why people remember the specifics and get mad all over again. But yeah, my assumption had been going into this. They're like, yeah, people will be like, cool. I guess what I'm thinking as far as him going on the wall of fame is the thing that really, you know, yeah, I, the 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 wins most wins above replacement with the Phillies than any other team, and that he came up through the farm system. Th- those are two valid points, but I think the fact that he never played on a winner and that his legacy is that he didn't want to be here uh, are, are going to live in people's heads. And from that from that perspective, I totally understand not wanting to see Scott <laughs> Rowland get honored in Philadelphia, a place he wanted desperately out of. Uh, and also, that whole Boa Rowland circumstance is just such a great example when people ask, like, we should fire the manager. We shouldn't fire the manager. What does a manager really do anyway? How valuable is a manager? If they don't really do anything, they're not going to impact the team. Well, they impact the team a lot. You know, and we have those debates all the time uh, when a manager's on the, on the hot seat. And I think this was such a great example of when a manager just isn't isn't a fit. You know, yeah. there, was, there, there are guys yeah. who did respond to Larry Boa's leadership, but... I think that he met a a uh, a player who happened to be like younger and from another generation who simply did not come up through the game. Uh, I, I guess not having coaches who who screamed at him and and like had the Larry Boa style of managing. Uh, that just what that just didn't work for him. Maybe he had somebody like that earlier in his career and was like, I hate this. And now anybody who acted like that, he just did not respond to. But it was clear very quickly that Boa's hardcore, like hard-nosed, tough, tough as nails style just wasn't going to jive with Roland. And if 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 he had just adjusted in some way but like Bo is also just very stubborn especially at that point and he's not gonna bow down to a young star player who quote unquote hasn't you know accomplished anything yet or whatever uh, what depending on what point in the in the sequence you're talking about uh and but and roland does he did get some individual awards while in philadelphia he was rookie of the year right yes yeah he was rookie of the year in philadelphia um 
I'm looking it up, but like, did he have a silver slugger or something while he I think was he here? did. Yeah, I mean, a number of gold gloves. I mean, he was a great. Gold he gloves, great. that's right. Yeah. yeah, he had three gold gloves in Philadelphia. He actually wound up very low, but in the MVP balloting, two different years in Philadelphia in 98 and 2001. And yeah, one rookie of the year in 1997. So yeah, he didn't do nothing here. He's a significant figure in Philadelphia, but I think, yeah, what most people, especially who were uh, a, you know young, adult, vibrant Phillies fans at the time, uh, what they remember most is that he just wanted to leave. And yeah, I, I get not wanting to honor guys like that. I do. My assumption had been people just wouldn't, they would just be over that by now. But I think people are, yeah. are ticked off enough about the current Phillies that seeing this is like, Ugh. but when right. people were like, this is, this is exactly like letting a Mets fan throughout the first pitch. No, it's not. No, it's I'm, different I'm telling than you that. it's not. <laughs> no, it's different. It's different than that. He he's a he was a great player. He just happened to play at a time when the Phillies were maybe at their very worst in the late '90s and, and early 2000s, and he was seen as the savior. And it's not fun when the guy who's supposed to save your team decides he wants out because you're not good enough. And so he didn't want to wait around for the new stadium. And and uh, and and listen, it's hard to get too mad about it because, listen, the Phillies probably used that Scott Rowland money to go sign Jim Tomey, and that kind of ushered in a new era of Phillies baseball. So um, it is what it is, and everybody, if, if people are still upset, that's fine. I get it, but I think it's it's a healthier thing to let it go. Yeah, always. But that's not really what we do here. So, again, I do understand people who are holding on to that anger like a life preserver as they float through the second half of their lives. Uh, we'll get more into this Wall of Fame uh, class, I'm sure, in future ep episodes, because, like I said, Scott Rowland's not the only one who will be inducted. You also have John Quinn and Ruley Carpenter. Uh, but, yeah, that'll be... A weekend, you know, maybe it'll be fun. <laughs> well, Roland won't. Roland won't be there on the in the actual um, alumni weekend when they normally do this because he has a conflict. But he'll be there like uh, f like a couple of weeks after that for for his own ceremony or something like Boy, that. Boy, that's so. that's gonna that's gonna. So it's kind of on brand. I'm <laughs> sorry gonna, to say. Yeah, that's gonna do some things for some people as well. It's kind I'm of sure. on brand. Well, John, what are you thinking about this uh, series with the Nationals we got ahead of us here? The, the, the Phillies started an NL East gauntlet and started with the two toughest teams to face. They split a four-game set with the Braves and got swept by the Mets. So mm -hmm. let's, take, let's, let's shift down to what should be easy mode and see if the Phillies can take on the Nationals. Is this going to be uh, an opportunity that the Phillies take advantage of to get back on track? I think they'll win the series. Uh, I think they'll win uh, one of the first. I think they'll win the first game on Friday night just to kind of get the bad taste out of their mouths. I think they'll drop one. Uh, wouldn't surprise me at all if they win the first two and then lose the getaway game, which is kind of how this team operates when they win a series. They, they get mm -hmm. your hopes up for a sweep and, and then find a way to, to foul it up. So uh, that would be very on brand for this team. I, I will tell you that as someone who lives in this area, the Nationals are a spunky group this year. They really are. They're actually, some of their young guys are playing pretty well. Their pitchers are pitching pretty well. They don't really have any stars on the team, but uh, they they do a lot of little things pretty well. They, they don't strike out a bunch. They put the ball in play, and they're a scrappy little team. I could absolutely see the Nationals winning this series, um, given the way the Phillies are playing and the way the Nationals have kind of hung tough against teams this year. They're, they're, they're better than they were last year. They're not good but by any stretch of the imagination, but I think the Phillies win the series. I think they win Friday and Saturday, and they lose on Sunday. I think if this goes anything other than perfectly, um, you're gonna you are gonna start to see you're gonna lose some people. 
I, I think this will mm-hmm. be the the cutoff point for a lot of people who might just like, all right, you know what? I'll check back in at the All Star break, but I'm not going to watch this team drop a series to the Nationals. Like, I'm just not going to do that. So I think after watching the last two series that were like, you know, supposed to be a big moment, a big chance for this team. And they fell flat on their faces again, felt like more or less uh, to see them go up against the Nationals. And if, yeah, if they if they lose this series, I think you're going to you're going to see some fans check out. And yeah. I think that's totally fair and deserved. And that's what I wrote about for, for the Billy Penn article for the last podcast was like, if you all need to check out, if anybody needs to check out for a little while, we won't check out because this is what we do. And so this is like the perfect place to kind of come in and, and check in and say, is it does it still suck in there? It still sucks. Okay, we'll just let, let, we'll just keep checking back every every other day. You know when you guys put out a podcast, and we'll just it's still bad. Still, it's still can we can't come back yet? Okay, cool. We'll listen to the next podcast and find out. If that's what you all want to do. Totally get it. Yeah, totally understandable. Let us be that lead. Let us be that that hand that guides you in the dark right now for just a little while. <laughs> Uh, last thing before we close up here, uh, just a real quick on this day. Uh, it's actually on this day for tomorrow, but uh, today's the day we're recording an episode. Uh, I just wanted to mention, you know, it was like 15 we're always, years we're, ago. We're always recording on today. Did you know that? Did you yeah, ever notice true. that? Every single time we record, <laughs> it's on today. It's just weird. It's just a, it's a weird coincidence that yeah. happens exclusively to us. Yeah. Yep. Uh, but yeah, 15 years ago on June 3rd, Chase Utley hit a home run in his fifth straight game. He was leading the National League with 21 home runs at that point. It was a game against the Reds in which Pedro Feliz and Chris Coast also homered. They shelled Bronson Arroyo in a game that saw Edwin Encar- Enca- Encarnacion and, quote, rookie sensation Jay Bruce of the Reds <laughs> also hit home runs. Ken Griffey Jr. was in the house. He was watching from the Reds bench. Uh, he was off for the night with what's called general soreness. That's called being in your 30s. Sitting at 599 career home runs at that point, everybody was probably furious. As seeming, seemingly every other player in the building was hitting home runs except for Ken Griffey Jr., who just <laughs> needed one more to hit 600. Uh, I tell you all this basically to, to ask you a simple question. Uh, remember power hitting? <laughs> Those are the days. I'm serious. Why? As I keep thinking about it, like this team in the in the playoffs last year, every big moment was like a home run. Like if you go back and watch the highlights, it was all home runs, and they just they, they just went away. They just went away. Where they go? Maybe the the less amount of schedule that Kyle Schwarber has to go nuts on a baseball, maybe he will pack more home runs into smaller and smaller amounts of space. Like if they, if he really, if it's like August and he hasn't really picked it up yet, maybe he will then hit like 60 home runs in August and September. I I, I would be fine <laughs> with that. <laughs> the flabbergasted noise with which you started that response is the answer. That's the, <laughs> I don't, I don't find it realistic, but yes, I'd be here for that. Uh, John, would you like it if one of the Phillies hit 60 home runs in two months? Uh, yes, I would, I, I, Justin. I'd be, I'd be fine with that. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> well, that'll do it for this episode of Hidden Season. Uh, thank you for listening. As always, don't forget to check out the Patreon at patreon.com slash hidden season. For five bucks a month, you can get access to all kinds of bonus Phillies content. That's what everybody wants right now as they get their summers underway. From WHYY and Billy Penn, thanks for listening. This has been Hidden Season.